Good morning, everyone. Welcome uh, to this session on the human crisis in Syria and Iraq and what is possible. I'm Steve Morrison. I'm the Senior Vice President here at CSIS, and I direct our Global Health Policy Center. And it's my great honor and pleasure to be here with this distinguished group. Uh, we all have to begin our, 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 our discussions today with obvious acknowledgement and condolences to all the victims and families of the tragedies in Paris. Uh, this weekend, um, I was in Geneva and Zurich on Friday night and into the weekend, and it was quite evident from that distance the level of shock and solemnity, the uncertainty and nervousness, and the sense of the profundity of that moment, um, that it is a thunderclap, and that the targeting of youth, the direct tie, as we heard from the previous panel, the discussions, particularly Jeffrey Dyer's remarks from the Financial Times about the degree to which the refugees issue is now fully entwined with the discussion around terrorism in that context. Our discussion here is meant to be a very lively and interactive and open discussion of the operating environment in Syria, Iraq, and the bordering states, the borderlands, for reaching vulnerable populations to provide essential protection, shelter, food, water, health, services. There'll be some overlap inevitably with the discussion that preceded us. Our premise here is that Syria and Iraq are really the motor force for the increasingly globalized crisis of refugees and internally displaced, now topping 60 million worldwide. There are other weak, dissolving sovereign states that are confronting internal wars that are chronic and, and, and widening that contribute to this, Yemen, Libya come to mind. I expect we'll hear about them. And of course, there's, uh, there's a, a, a presiding concern around the stress, the stability, the consequences for, the, for Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, which have absorbed now over four million refugees. We'll focus on what's happening there. Arguably, this is the most difficult, complicated human crisis today in the world. It does involve multiple wars. It, it, it is reflected in the sheer scale, scale, unprecedented scale of the imperiled populations uh, that are vulnerable and on the move, the stark shortfalls and stark access barriers that we're seeing, um, the very fluid and dangerous and, and, and evolving security situation, the fact that you have governments like Syria's Assad that bomb, decimate, and drive out its own populations, that you have external powers, and we'll hear more about the Russian role, that engage in similar tactics, that you have armed factions that are actively contesting one another and government's control of ter territories and populations, including the Islamic State, and that great power rivalries, U.S. and Russia, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Iran, others, are an overlay, a very deep overlay, on what's happening driving this human crisis forward. This crisis escalated when you look back over the five and a half years of the Syrian internal war and the many years prior to that of Iraq's war. The scale and the complexity of the human crisis escalated with a, with a, a remarkably steep trajectory, but it was often overlooked and, and, and obscured and dimly, only dimly understood, I believe. A part of the explanation is pessimism and resignation or that there were competing things, or that it was simply seen as something where it was so difficult to begin to address beyond simply financing the responses, and the U.S. government has been uh, exceptionally generous on that level. Um, but the 
frustration, I believe, was, was most fundamental within the emergency humanitarian community over access, financing, insufficient operational capacity, grave difficulties in protecting personnel and the lack of a path, of a foreseeable path out politically or in terms of security. We've tried here at CSIS over the last three years on multiple occasions to put a spotlight publicly on these challenges and we've benefited from the generous contributions of many of the people who are here today. The Obama administration, particularly USAID, the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance. We're joined here today by the director of that office, Jeremy Conant. I've been very generous. International Committee of the Red Cross. We're represented here today by Robert Mardini, uh, the director of Middle East and Near East Operations, uh, who has thanked we very grateful that you've come from Geneva. Uh, ICRC has consistently uh, been uh, very generous and very supportive in sharing its expertise uh, and, and, and its outlook. Um, MSF, uh, Doctors Without Borders, represented here by, today by J Jason Cohn, the Executive Director of MSF US, has also been um, just an exceptionally generous partner, and we're very grateful to you, Jason, for coming uh, the, 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 the distance from New York to be with us today. Um, what, we, what we're going to do here is very similar to the prior panel, we're going to begin uh, with Robert, Jason, Jeremy, and then, and then my colleague Rebecca Hurstman from our International Security Program, uh, who has also worked very closely with us over the last several months in a joint health and security forum and been a terrific colleague and who was critically important in the district while serving in DOD as, as a Deputy Assistant Secretary over a six-year period. Uh, in all sorts of, of major initiatives on weapons of mass destruction. She was very integral in the effort and the destruction of the chemical weapons in Syria, and we'll draw from that experience. What we're going to do is, in the sequence of, of Robert, Jason, Jeremy, and Rebecca, I'll ask them to speak each for six or seven minutes and offer the headline, the headline points that they want really to get out on the table uh, to, to kick off this discussion. And we'll go through that cycle, and then we'll come back. I will uh, uh, pose a question, a round of questions. But I want to get early on in this discussion. We have 75 minutes for this. I want to get to you all and hear from you all. So we will, we will move as rapidly as we can to pull your comments and questions in. And when we do get to that point, I would just ask um, that you identify yourself and keep your intervention to a single comment or question that is very succinct. So thank you all. Uh, and I'm especially grateful to those on this panel here uh, today who have come to share with us their perspectives. And I'd like to invite Robert to kick things off. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a great, great pleasure and honor to be here uh, today. I will offer maybe four uh, headlines to set uh, the, the frame of, of the discussion. Uh, first and foremost, uh, we see no end in sight to protracted conflict in Syria and Iraq, uh, and those conflicts are devastating. Uh, and we have seen over the past years that situations in Syria and Iraq, but also other countries in the region, uh, Yemen, Libya, uh, have moved from uh, popular uprising and developed into civil wars with uh, a pattern of uh, increased confrontation and regional competition. Uh, that move into uh, a new way of kind of a proto-world war involving many states, 
but also many armed groups. And we see a pattern of growing complexity. Uh, more than 15 states are today involved in Syria and Iraq, uh, and more than hundreds of non-state armed groups are also involved in fighting on the ground with the front line shifting uh, by the day and alliances also uh, shifting from one month to the, to the other. Uh, we also see the pattern that the most of the armed groups are uh, getting more and more radical uh, by the time. Uh, so the conflict are intense, uh, very violent uh, weapons are being used, uh, but the conflict are also fragmented, uh, interconnected, and regionalized. Uh, the Syrian crisis has generated a regional crisis uh, with uh, high numbers of refugees crossing the borders. Four million Syrian refugees are living in Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, and, and Egypt, uh, but also they are weakening the states who are hosting uh, them. Uh, the second headline is about the humanitarian situation that today in Syria and Iraq is nothing short of catastrophic. Uh, people, are, people are being killed and injured every day. You know about the terrible figures and statistics of Syria, 250,000 people killed since the beginning of the conflict, more than one million people injured uh, since 2011. Uh, in Iraq, we speak of tens of thousands of people being killed or injured since the recent uh, upsurge in the conflict in 2014. We speak of tens of thousands of people reportedly uh, gone missing or detained in both countries. We speak of millions of people cut off uh, in hard to reach or besieged areas in Syria and Iraq, uh, let alone, of course, uh, the approximation of 8 to 10 million people living today in areas controlled by the Islamic State group that, of course, remains a huge challenge because access to these areas are extremely challenging for humanitarian organizations. Uh, we speak also of massive population displacement, and here the pattern moved from um, internal displacement in Syria, uh, more than 7.5 million uh, have been moving, have been on the move. Uh, many of them uh, moved uh, more than one time, fleeing, uh, fighting, and combats. Uh, we speak today of uh, 3.2 million Iraqis also constantly uh, on the move. Uh, we speak of 4 million refugees. Uh, and this refugee crisis has now developed into uh, a full-fledged global migration crisis. Uh, nowadays, uh, we have sev several thousand uh, Syrians and Iraqis and Afghans crossing into, into Europe, creating uh, a new uh, challenge. The resilience of people and communities have been tested to the limits in Syria and Iraq. Uh, today, 12.2 million persons in Syria, 8.6 in Iraq, depend actually on daily humanitarian support. Sorry. Uh, the economies uh, are totally crippled uh, and on, on its knees, prices are soaring. Infrastructure uh, has been uh, steadily destroyed, uh, be it the water supply, electricity supply, uh, health services. Uh, many services are disrupted today. Uh, one in five Syrians live today under the poverty line. Uh, I would like to focus on health services that have been particularly hard hit uh, by the events in Syria and Iraq. Attacks on health facilities and personnel are being reportedly carried out by all sides uh, and all parties to the conflict. Access to health care is problematic for the wounded, but also for, for the chronically ill, the elderly, the disabled, the vulnerable, the, the pregnant women. Polio, leishmaniasis, uh, cholera, 
uh, typhoid are epidemic that are back in countries that used to be uh, countries of very high level of uh, public health services. Um, an area of great concern for the International Committee of the Red Cross is the lack of respect of the rules of four. International humanitarian law uh, is not respected, and this generates untold suffering for the population every day. So as ICRC, we are, uh, Syria is today our biggest operation. Iraq is our third biggest operation. We are doing a lot in the field of water supply, in the field of uh, uh, health services, in the field of uh, economic security. Uh, we support more than 7 million people uh, so far from the beginning of the year in, in Syria, uh, 2 million in Iraq in terms of uh, food supplies. Uh, 15 million persons in Syria benefit in a way or another from our water supply projects, but this remains insufficient. And today, the needs of the people outpace the collective humanitarian response. And here, I'm not talking about the ICRC, but the collective response of all organizations active in Syria uh, and Iraq. Uh, on what we, we, need, we, we need and we want to happen, uh, of course, this can be summarized uh, first with parties to the conflict must respect international humanitarian law. They must allow the delivery of impartial aid to all those who need it, including across frontline and besieged area. Humanitarian aid should not be politicized. And unfortunately, uh, we uh, are under permanent pressure by all sides of the conflict to politicize the humanitarian response. Wounded at sick must be allowed for safe access to healthcare without distinction. Medical care needs to be kept out of the conflict. Medical personnel and facilities must be protected by all means. Civilian caught in the line of fire need to breathe, so more uh, local ceasefires are needed to provide space for aid to get in. Humanitarian workers should not be attacked. Uh, since the beginning of the conflict in Syria, close to 50 volunteers of Syrian Red Crescent were killed in the line on, uh, of duty. And of course, more humanitarian aid is needed. Uh, and more support is needed from the donor. The United States is, uh, uh, has demonstrated a great generosity with humanitarian organization active, but more needs to be done. Uh, and meaningful humanitarian services, at least, will give the people an option to stay. We, we are not naive, and we don't want to prevent displacement through humanitarian aid, but at least when you re-establish water supply and health services, at least you give communities and families the option to stay in their communities. Um, and clearly, uh, when we, we think of uh, the crisis in Lebanon, Jordan, I think the international community need to shift gears um, uh, from pure humanitarian aid into recovery uh, and development because those countries uh, badly need uh, greater services for its, the community itself, the host community, and the refugee. Uh, and uh, an important topic is that ICRC should be allowed to visit detainees uh, held by all sides, monitor their conditions, re-establish contact with their families, and ensure that their uh, judicial rights are respected. And uh, last but not least, the four big headline is that, that it is high time for a political uh, solution. Aid alone will not solve the issue, we all know it, uh, and the political solution is needed. We welcome talks in Vienna that are now underway as a positive step and urge those taking part to make progress towards ending the horror in Syria, this will have also positive repercussions on Iraq and the region. But we all know that the end to this conflict will not happen overnight. Uh, as states work towards this goal, the parties to the conflict might, might, must take concrete measures to respect the basic principle of humanity and the law of war. So it is critical to see now convergent effort from countries of influence for greater respect of international humanitarian law. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Robert. Jason. So strongly agree with many of the statements that Robert has just made, particularly in the nature of the fact that uh, aid alone is not going to, to end this uh, conflict. And to be honest, the aid is, is barely meeting the most basic uh, daily survival needs of the population in, in Syria and even arguably in many of the places where they've sought refuge outside of the country. Um, as I think you all well know how, how a bloody war this is um, for, for my organization, for MSF. Um, it's been an incredibly frustrating conflict in the sense that uh, we feel today this should be our biggest intervention probably in the history of our organization, uh, yet because of the complexity of operating and the dangers of operating uh, inside Syria, it is not. And, and for us, we see that in many ways um, as a failure both of, of our abilities to reach the population but the, the broader humanitarian effort uh, at large. We've seen essentially an erosion of our access over the last few years. We had uh, many more hospitals open, uh, actually international staff able to work largely in northern Syria in, in 2012 and 2013. Uh, much of that was uh, very much put in danger in the fact that we are no longer able to work uh, in Islamic State held areas. Uh, after they uh, abducted five of our staff in 2014 and broke uh, agreements that we had with them at local commander level. Um, and so we're not able to reach much of the population inside uh, the areas that they hold. Uh, today we know that the, the needs are quite huge there from what we hear through our contacts. Um, that said, we also have had our own problems as well with uh, the government of Syria. We have no permission to work inside the country, therefore uh, we work uh, largely in uh, northern-held areas uh, and work through a robust uh, support network where we provide assistance to about 150 medical structures in many different parts of the country. Um, it has been uh, a very difficult way, I think, of, of reaching, but we feel like it's the best solidarity we can give to our Syrian colleagues who are largely the lifeline to their own uh, communities, uh, particularly in the areas that are under siege. Uh, even where there are partial sieges where some of the goods are allowed in, medical material for treating the wounded is usually forbidden. So many times, oftentimes, our, our contacts and through our support networks, they risk their lives to bring in gauze. Uh, they uh, have to traverse areas under sniper fire and other ways. Um, uh, as we know about the, the barrel bombings that have been targeting uh, many different medical structures throughout the conflict. So essentially, uh, life-saving medical care is, is a tool. Controlling it is a tool in, in the war, uh, in the war effort. Um, the conflict, is, uh, as Robert has noted, has destroyed what was previously well-functioning uh, healthcare system. Huge medical needs have arisen from the direct and indirect consequences of the conflict as a result. As I said, the large-scale targeting and destruction of health facilities, of pharmaceutical factories, of blood banks, Essentially, every part of the, the, the sort of chain uh, that would create a health system are, are, are targeted on a regular basis. It means that uh, millions of people are now cut off from health care. Uh, from March 2011, at the start of the conflict until September, we had about over 670 doctors who've been killed, hundreds more detained, uh, tens of thousands have fled the country. Uh, and it's left a radically reduced workforce. So something as simple as diabetes is now, uh, can be a death sentence in the country. Um, and now we've seen, as, as Rob was alluding to, the really, obviously the regionalization of the conflict uh, with the, the entrance of uh, the Russian government uh, just days after the uh, President uh, Vladimir Putin spoke before the General Assembly. Uh, Airstrikes air from Russia struck a number of medical facilities uh, in those days. 
uh, including a health facility that had been uh, a major portion of the uh, vaccination center in Idlib region that was uh, vaccinating children against things like polio, which we've seen obviously reemerge in a country where it never should have reemerged. Um, we have hundreds of thousands of Syrians living in displaced camps um, and living under fire and the, living without really any uh, reasonable shelter or sanitation, forced to drink untreated contaminated water, which has contributed to outbreaks of cholera and typhoid and other, other diseases that, again, we should never have seen. You see hospitals essentially, uh, particularly in places like Aleppo, where we, run, uh, we still run a, a small hospital there, uh, overwhelmed by wounded every day. Uh, in August alone, uh, some of the health centers we had been supporting were treating upwards of 150 war wounded a day uh, uh, in the peak of some of the violence then. So aside from the direct consequences, which we know are, are massive uh, from the war, um, we see these chronic diseases, be it diabetes, hypertension, uh, cancer, uh, where people have no access to treatment inside the country and obviously very challenged as well when they flee to other parts of the outside of the country, to Lebanon, to Turkey, to Jordan. Um, but just a massive uh, impact from the, the collapse of the health system. Um, and with the, the cholera outbreaks, I think it just underscores the fact that uh, we're in an incredibly vulnerable situation. Um, you know, the international efforts to facilitate aid have been uh, disappointing uh, at best. Uh, Cross-border resolutions that uh, have been passed have seen very little aid get into areas that are not under government control. Uh, and we have to see those as a, a critical failure alongside uh, other efforts to try and uh, support uh, Syrians. I'll just switch briefly to, to, to Iraq um, as well, where we see obviously clearly the linkages between these conflicts. Uh, are very are very strong. Again, another place very difficult to operate for uh, international aid. Not a lot of aid is going into areas that uh, uh, obviously are under control of uh, the Islamic State, but also the so-called gray areas. And even in places where uh, uh, there's been less violence and, and less unpredictability, you see in places like Dohuk, where you have Syrian refugees, where there's been uh, a decrease in the assistance to refugees, and we've seen that be a push factor for people leaving, actually. And those, uh, so we see even in places where we should see a better aid effort, uh, where the security should facilitate it, a still very quite weak uh, response in many respects. So this is, uh, and we see just things just getting gradually worse in Iraq as well. I mean, it's clearly one of the, the worst situations we've seen in the country in a long time. Um, and we've seen already the cholera epidemic spilling over uh, into Iraq as well. Uh, we can see that working across the borders that, uh, that are between the two countries. Uh, it's been spread to about 15 different Iraqi governments, about 1,800 lab-proven cases that have, we've seen there. Uh, a very difficult situation. So all told, uh, just to underscore, I think, some of the things that Robert has said, we've seen a complete breakdown of the respect for international humanitarian law, the ability to reach people. We're really at uh, almost at ground zero. Uh, if it weren't for the Syrians helping themselves with the support that comes from inside, uh, you see, I think, even a worse situation. And we clearly need to move along with uh, some kind of way to facilitate aid into the country, cross borders, cross line, um, because what we see now is not acceptable from a humanitarian standpoint. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jason. Jeremy Conondike. Thank you. FDA. Uh, thank you, uh, Stephen, and thank you to, to Robert and Jason for a, a pretty comprehensive rundown of just how awfully bad it is and is um, continuing to get in, in Syria and Iraq. Um, I, I don't have a whole lot to add to, to what they've said in terms of uh, a description of the, the, the situation and the humanitarian trends that we're seeing. And it, it is 
continuing to deteriorate. I think we are, what we're seeing now, uh, particularly in Syria, but we're also beginning to see signs of this in Iraq, is that the, the underlying resilience and coping abilities of the, the affected population is just, is approaching, is approaching zero as, uh, as they run through their savings, as they uh, uh, go through the fifth, sixth, seventh rounds of displacement their ability to sustain themselves is is decreasing and i think that's one of the one of the things that's driving uh, a lot of departures from uh, from syria uh, it is one of the most if not the most difficult operating environments for humanitarians in the world and uh, to the to the question that uh, that frames this panel of what can be done it's it's a difficult question to answer without talking about civilian security uh, the we consistently here, we, we partner with many NGOs, with many UN agencies. We consistently hear from our partners that the biggest single challenge, both in terms of their operational ability and in terms of what is driving displacement and driving humanitarian need, are the tactics of the armed groups, and in particular, the regime and its supporters. Uh, as, uh, as Jason said, uh, and as Robert said, health facilities are struck on a regular basis, very intentionally. Uh, over and over and over, hundreds of strikes, hundreds of airstrikes, barrel bombs on health facilities, um, hundreds of strikes on markets, on other civilian centers. These do not serve a military purpose. These are not about winning the war. These are about terrorizing and punishing a population. And <clears throat> it's very hard you know, there, there is certainly more that should, could and should be done on access. Uh, I, I would disagree a bit with Jason that, that uh, we haven't seen progress on that. I think that Resolution 2165 has not done all we'd hoped, but it has helped. Uh, it's, it's helped in particular to make the UN effort much more coherent and much more effective. But there's only so much you can do in an environment where a government is bombing the living daylights out of its own people. And when that is happening, there is only so much humanitarians can do. So what needs to happen, what more can be done, a really good place to start, really wonderful place to start, uh, would be simply observing basic rules of armed conflict. Don't bomb health facilities. Don't bomb markets. If you do it, don't do it again and again and again and again and again and again, over and over and over. We see, and we've seen this number of times, in areas where there is a respite from the barrel bombs, even of a, a few months, um, if the, the focus of the regime shifts elsewhere, we see people coming back, we see people returning, and they flee again when the bombs start dropping again. That needs to stop. And uh, you know, the humanitarian community has done an absolutely heroic job, but there's only so much you can do in an environment like that. So I, I think that the, the, the question of what more should be done needs to really focus on the regime, it needs to focus on its supporters, uh, and they need to start observing some basic norms of human decency. Um, there is a funding issue, there is a resource issue, there are not enough resources to go around. The whole humanitarian system is in a funding crisis at the moment, driven largely by these protracted conflicts. Um, the U.S. is doing what we can to continue to provide really robust support, and we've put about $4.5 billion into the Syria crisis since it began. Uh, we've put about $600 million into the Iraq crisis since it uh, accelerated greatly uh, a couple years ago. And we'll continue to do that, uh, but it's constrained by the access situation. It's constrained by the conflict. And um, the, 
the behavior of the armed groups has to change. And barring that, it's going to be very difficult to ever mount a robust, truly suitable humanitarian uh, response in this environment. Uh, I was in Turkey a few months ago and consulting with some of our consulting with some of our partners who were talking to me about the airstrikes, talking to me about this conflict uh, going on well into its fifth year. Um, and one of them said, you know, we're just seeing in more and more places that people's hope is dying. People's hope is dying. And um, there are a lot of reasons why people are, are fleeing to Europe, and, and Robert talked about a few of those. Um, aid is not a total solution to that. It can help. Um, but ultimately, if people don't see a future in a place, and it's very hard to see a future in a place when you're getting bombs dropped on your head on a regular basis, people aren't going to stay. And barring that, barring some degree of hope that it could get better, they're going to at some point make a rational choice to seek to make a life elsewhere. And um, uh, yeah, and that's a, a, a very, very uh, tough situation going forward. Uh, in Iraq, uh, it's, it's a less bad situation, certainly. Uh, the, in the areas where the government is in control, there's good access. In the areas, as, as Jason said, where ISIL is in control, the access is, is, virtually, is virtually nil. Um, uh, ISIL is not an actor that respects laws of armed conflict. It's not an actor that respects humanitarian norms, for the most part. And um, it's very, very difficult to get assistance into those areas. I think within the, within the areas that are accessible, the, the humanitarian operation has, been, has done a pretty decent job with very limited resources. Uh, we're, we're doing what we can from the U.S. government side to ensure that that, uh, that that operation is adequately resourced. And I think the U.N. has done a particularly commendable job there in prioritizing limited resources, something we don't always see out of the U.N. system. Often the appeals are these kind of big Christmas tree things. Uh, I think they, the humanitarian coordinator there has done a really excellent job of saying, okay, we're not going to get everything we're asking for. Here are the things that we really have to prioritize. And so we've been putting our... Um, putting our funding very heavily towards those priorities. And that includes, in particular, uh, shelter and NFI and emergency kits for people who are newly displaced and, and who often have to flee with, with virtually nothing. Um, so more could be done on the resources side. More could be done on the access side. But really, it's down to the, the behavior of the parties to the conflict. And barring changes to that, it's really hard to get to where we need to be with a robust aid operation. Thanks. Thank you very much. Rebecca. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's also very intimidating to follow three experts who are directly responsible for delivering services on the ground and who do so with the responsibility for individuals on the ground who serve at their peril. Um, so I've been asked to step back and from a slightly broader perspective, think about this question about what can be done. And we know we have to be sort of provocative to open any what can be done space. The statistics on the Syria conflict are absolutely mind boggling as our panelists have reiterated. On the other hand, the imperative to do something is growing and never more so than after the horrific events in Paris. The situation is fluid even today from yesterday as we kind of all react to uh, information as it's coming, coming out about the attacks. And so being prescriptive in this dynamic environment is challenging. 
but I, I will try. And uh, I just want to say I approach it with a degree of humility, but I'm going to try to put some ideas out there. So one thing really hasn't changed, that the way forward for Syria in terms of the broader policy strategic context remains caught between sort of extremes in terms of the camps of what to do and how to do it. Um, really, much like the millions of refugees and IDPs created by the crisis, a comprehensive strategic solution on the one hand is the answer, or in some other communities, a tactical military solution to force change on the ground is seen as the other option. Meanwhile, winter approaches, the conflict is escalating, the refugee outflows are bringing suffering, enormous social financial pressures, and now even the threat of terror to receiving nations. So it's just continuing to escalate while the broader policy debate continues. So at the strategic level, the clamor for a comprehensive solution is louder than ever. And in the aftermath of the Paris attacks, it appears that negotiations in Vienna have perhaps made some more progress than expected, and we should all be grateful for that. But even if negotiations between the Assad regime and the opposition elements begin on the 1st of January, it will take considerable time, no matter what, under the best of circumstances. How can that process arrest a humanitarian disaster that worsens by the day and may grow bleaker still if anti-ISIS airstrikes accelerate or borders in Europe and elsewhere tighten further to block refugees who may provide cover for ISIL terrorists? On the other side of the continuum, in recent weeks, the debate had once again sort of resurfaced on specific tactical military options, no-fly zones in particular. However, given the geography, demography of the conflict and, and the region, the lack of a mandate or political structure to support such an intervention, and the lack of clear, measurable objectives for the task, these solutions have continually risked being military answers in search of questions. So it's very difficult to see how even that approach would substantially improve conditions for the 6.5 million IDPs in Syria today or the over 4 million who have fled the crisis altogether. So the question is, is there any space in between? I do believe there's potentially some middle ground, ambitious but hopefully not impossible, that merits a little more exploration. And in considering what that middle ground might look like, I thought it would be helpful to think through and reflect on our experience with the removal and the destruction of the Syrian chemical weapons program. A very different situation, but in a relative success in the course of a very complex crisis based on a very specific set of objectives. So are there any lessons or ideas that could help to enable an operational response to mitigate the massive humanitarian and refugee crisis. I don't say solve, I deliberately say mitigate. It's an incredibly challenging task. So five quick lessons that we might apply. First, we need a very specific, well-defined objective. The CW removal had specific and quantifiable objectives for which there was substantial support from the international community. More than 1,200 metric tons of chemical precursors and agents, 12 production facilities, thousands of pieces of equipment, things that could be measured, destroyed, and acted upon in very concrete terms. Is it possible that a surge humanitarian mission could be defined in similarly concrete and preferably realistic terms? Full approval and support for humanitarian convoy requests, increased access to essential health care and nutrition for besieged populations by a certain percentage, expanding health and education services in border refugee facilities by Y percentage, 
expanding global placement of refugees, and so forth. Not silver bullets, just significant measurable progress for those suffering inside the country on its borders and along the migratory pathway. If specific and concrete measures are possible, then we could begin to have the outlines of an ambitious but achievable initiative, because at least we would know what the objective is. Now, defining the objective, it's essential, and this was true also in the chemical weapons removal, to involve those with the, who are most expert, the people with the operational experience on the ground to help shape what those objectives are and the key uh, elements of that type of initiative. So I'm just illustrating ideas, but they would have to do that. We had a room full of technical experts in Geneva that helped to line up what those targets and objectives were. Second, and in many ways the hardest, everything can't be a priority. CW removal was for a period of time clearly, I would say even ruthlessly, prioritized above other objectives. No cake and eat it too, no do everything at the same time. Even in the face of painful policy choices and a recognition that Assad was able to capitalize on the effort in terms of his political standing and survivability, the decision was to prioritize that effort even at the expense or delay of other priorities. Can the United States stand up, or the broader international community, and say that in the short and medium term, given the advent of winter, Reducing the humanitarian suffering of Syrians displaced, besieged, and refugee populations is the number one priority. If so, then the coalition of strange bedfellows, we might say, Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, European partners, and others who have a stake in stabilizing the situation might be able to come together and make meaningful change. To work, however, it can't be held hostage by the political negotiations and it may require additional restraint in terms of military targeting of ISIS and others. So some very difficult choices would need to be made. Third, you need to have a deal. You need to have a deal based on mutual interests from the players most able to affect circumstances on the ground. The CW removal effort flowed from a bilateral framework between the United States and Russia that was based on compatible interests and political realism. With that foundation in place, supported by critical international legal instruments from the Security Council and the OPCW, Russia could and did wield its political influence in Syria and compelled cooperation with the international community, while the United States focused largely on galvanizing the international community and assembling the coalition necessary to pursue the very specific tasks that needed to occur. Is a pragmatic approach such as this possible? Can we and Russia together be parts of the solution and in fact use their growing presence and stake in the situation and, and presence on the ground to advantage in pursuit of limited, specific, and urgent objectives? The political security and security uh, imperatives to act have never been higher. Improving humanitarian conditions and stemming refugee flows should be common ground now more than ever. If Russia could compel the Syrians to transport more than 20 convoys of highly toxic chemical materials through and between conflict zones to the port of Latakia, is it so impossible to imagine that humanitarian convoys could not move in larger numbers with the right kind of political pressure? Could Russia participate directly in the provision of perhaps air or ground delivered supplies and actually spearhead some of that effort? Can they compel access on the part of the Syrians and military restraint, as was referred to in terms of protecting humanitarian norms? Number four, 
no business as usual. CW removal and destruction did not expect to meet unprecedented challenges with business as usual approaches or a traditional toolkit. It required technical, operational, political, and bureaucratic innovation. The humanitarian and refugee crisis here is similarly unprecedented and plagued by a level of violence that makes traditional humanitarian intervention unexecutable, as I think the panelists have largely described despite their heroic efforts. Is it possible that such an initiative could benefit from some sort of joint mission to help galvanize work on the ground at a political level that would bring together the UN and NGO elements of most critical uh, need and proactively manage the security requirements, enable on-the-ground procurements and contracting, interface directly with those who control territory to facilitate access and safe passage. Finally, the CW removal and destruction effort used and supported international legal frameworks to remove excuses. Excuses need to be taken off the table. Those frameworks provided authority and resources and we hope ultimately accountability. The CW removal effort relied on the authority of the Security Council and the Executive Council decisions to build a viable coalition, generate in-kind and financial contributions, and establish an expectation that non-compliance could result in additional consequences of a Chapter 7 character. It's not a Chapter 7 resolutions per se, but they clearly invoked that specter as in making this requirement incumbent, not only upon the Syrians, but upon the international community to support in a manner not seen hitherto. I think there might be a case here. In this case too, a large complex mission would probably need additional guidance from the Security Council to ensure that Syria has the obligation to comply and all nations have an obligation to support. So my proposition, as controversial as it is, and perhaps provocative, and I hope not naive. If we could clearly define and ruthlessly prioritize a humanitarian mission that had specific measures and limited objectives, agree on a political framework with Russia and other key nations to guide the effort and bind both of our nations to the outcome, and establish in conjunction with a clear international mandate an on-the-ground, multilaterally empowered entity to bridge the political and operational minefields and synchronize operational efforts, might the impossible seem just a little more doable. So with that, I throw it open. Thank you very much, uh, Rebecca, for a very provocative and detailed presentation. Um, I think rather than my pose a question, to our other panelists, I think we should take a round and allow the other three panelists to respond to what you just laid out and offer thoughts around the feasibility or the, uh, uh, the, the requisites for moving such a vision forward. Uh, and, and then we'll, uh, once we've heard from those three and had, uh, Rebecca's had a chance uh, to, to, to respond also, then we'll throw the, throw the floor open. So, why don't we just start with you, Robert? Do you want to offer any reflections on what, what was just suggested? Uh, by Rebecca, right? Or, pardon me. What are you talking about? No, clearly, I think the Syrian context uh, has been so challenging and uh, uh, the, the humanitarian catastrophe is so big that we, we need to think out of the box. And uh, this is an interesting parallel 
um, the only caveat I have uh, is uh, it's always important to set the priorities and to be as pragmatic as possible. Uh, but on the other hand, we, we need to make sure that there are no concessions made on what needs to be non-negotiable. Uh, th this is, to me, where the, 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 the fine line is. Uh, as ICRC, we have been extremely pragmatic, and uh, we were able, um, uh, over the past four years, uh, to, to increase the number of our cross-line operations, negotiating with all sides of the conflict. Uh, and this is a very lengthy process, but today it is possible. And we were even uh, successful sometimes in uh, delivering medical aid when we are able to, to demonstrate the added value to all sides. Uh, it is complex when you have to negotiate with more than 20 different groups to cross from uh, Western Aleppo to Eastern Aleppo. It is uh, complicated to neg negotiate in Muaddamiya for four hours with the, uh, at the checkpoint, uh, despite the fact that you got the green light uh, and all the stamps. Uh, and that was the case of uh, our team uh, two days ago. Um, but it will be dangerous to, to just offer compromises on where uh, IHL is applicable and where it might be, it might be less applicable. Mm. Uh, we, we know the idea of protected zones and are, uh, can be interesting, but it offers maybe the perception to certain parties to the conflict that maybe there are areas where IHL is applicable and everywhere else it is not, which is absolutely wrong. And th this is my, my word of, words of caution for whatever deal can be made to broaden uh, the humanitarian space. Thank you. Jason, do you want to offer any thoughts? I think we have to be realistic and open to, to some of these kinds of proposals. I mean, uh, the scale of the need sort of demands it. That I think at the same time, we can't see certain, certain principles, as Robert was saying, in terms of being able to independently assess what those needs are and respond to them and not have them be um, cherry-picked. I think one of the, the, the challenges of applying some of the lessons learned that you have from the, the chemical weapons uh, removal effort is, is that um, I think from the outside of this conflict, um, the, you know, the Assad government uh, and others have considered controlling aid as a critical part of their war effort. Um, it, is, it is arguably a more critical tool than the chemical weapons were in terms of uh, exacting punishment in lots of parts of the country. Uh, particularly in, in you know opposition held areas for them, so and we've seen uh, particular medical supplies pulled off convoys, things not be allowed to be in. We've seen epidemics unfolding in areas that uh, are outside of the, the the government's control. Even something as simple as chlorine not allowed to to, to be to pass through certain areas. And so I think it's uh, I, I think we can't lose. Everything in one of them I certainly would be uh, one of the challenges, as Robert was just saying, is, is that we sort of create any notion that uh, uh, it's a sort of, uh, uh, it's acceptable to sort of, um, to perpetrate this sort of no holds board war everywhere else but where we negotiate these sort of corridors. And also I think, um, you know, we've seen how kind of militarizing con convoys in any way can be tricky, I think, in terms of just negotiating certain access. But uh, at this point, I mean, I think we have to be open to, to trying things because we know the population is, is so cut off and, and, and suffering from a real tremendous lack of assistance. Jeremy. Uh, thanks. And uh, Rebecca, thanks for that. It, it, um, 
I hate to put it this way, but I think a lot of what you've laid out is, is exactly what we've been trying to do for the last couple of, of years. Um, I mean, Resolution 2165 and what followed was an attempt to use international legal instruments to force a change in regime behavior. And what we saw, unfortunately, was that the backers of the regime were not then willing to actually enforce it. And um, so the, the suffering of the population is a strategic objective of the Syrian military campaign. And uh, so far, despite many, many extensive efforts at the UN, uh, several Security Council resolutions condemning this sort of behavior, uh, the regime has ignored it. And those who back the regime have not held it accountable for ignoring it. And it's hard to see what leverage then, uh, what leverage then exists. Um, uh, in terms of directly negotiating access with the parties, you know, as, as Robert talked about with the four hours at a checkpoint, uh, many NGOs are in a similar situation. The UN is in a similar situation. I think those, uh, the humanitarians are doing everything they can at a at a ground level to negotiate access wherever they can get to. But um, barring a, a, a shift in how the the regime and its backers define the objectives of their campaign and and make the suffering of the opposition population or even whether whatever their political uh, alignment population that lives in opposition areas, until they change that objective of act of actively causing that population to suffer, it's it's very difficult to see a, a way forward. And so far, we haven't seen the regime's backers put any significant pressure on them to do that. The um, I mean, uh, just to add a few thoughts, and then I want to ask Rebecca to respond. And the um, the question seems to be whether. We're moving out of numbness and despair and resignation into whether things are shifting in some way at a strategic level that we're crossing certain thresholds and perhaps there's some glimmer of a, an opportunity or some glimmer of a ripening that might be happening. And by what I mean by that is the refugee crisis is fully upon Europe, right? That was not true a year ago. It is resulting in things like we saw in Paris. It's, it's tearing away at the politics. It's overwhelming budgets, governments, communities, and the like. And it's the epiphenomena. It's the outgrowth of this bigger human crisis. And it's very easy to sort of go, you want to fix that problem? It's like Ebola when we had outbreaks in Dallas. You want to fix that problem? You go to West Africa. You don't, you know, if you want to fix the crisis in Europe, you've got to go to the root causes and acknowledge them. And they are growing in bigger and bigger dimensions. It's more and more difficult to not deny the scale and gravity of this human crisis. The other point I'd make is the Russia's, Russia's entry on the ground as a security presence, which has been put to, put to terrible use in terms of egregious violations uh, of, of humanitarian law. But, the, but, but that is a new dimension, that there is a presence on the ground the, the, uh, that means something potentially if that can be turned to some other to some other use. So in terms of global consciousness, the European crisis, the 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 accelerating human crisis and scale of it, perhaps that's something that then gets us back to the question around what should the U.S. be thinking about strategically on the human crisis in its d d dialogue with the Russians, with the Saudis and the Iranians, with the Turks. As Vienna gets started, as the Security Council comes back to 2165, uh, as perhaps we tease out the lessons from the 
from the chemical weapons experience as Rebecca's urged us to think about. It just seems to me that that is the fundamental question on the table right now in terms of grand diplomacy that, that elevates this human crisis for what it should be, which is a top priority. Rebecca, could you offer some thoughts? And then we want to open. We've got about a little over 15 minutes to have some discussion also from you. Sure, just a, a couple of quick things. Um, for, for you know, first of all, let me just sort of agree with the points you just you just made, Stephen. I think um, the question is, is there a change moment upon us? In part because of actually the Russian entry into the conflict in the on the ground and in the air, is there a change moment upon us because the crisis has reached such an extraordinary proportion? And potentially, is there a change moment upon us because of events in Paris? And it also, quite frankly, including the downing of the Russian airliner and events in Beirut, let's not forget them. So it is possible that we have a change moment that creates an environment in which certain parties who previously didn't have the incentive to do something different may now. So that would be my first point. In terms of the protection of international humanitarian principles, I, I fully agree. Um, I actually quite deliberately didn't articulate something like humanitarian safe zones in any way as part of kind of what I listed. First, because I really believe those types of things need to be done by the experts to target. I will tell you my personal bias is to move the materials to the people rather than the people to the materials. Um, but that is, that is a personal bias that I have having worked on some of these issues, I think it's in a preferable approach. Um, so that's, that's if I have some, a concept built in, it is actually the opposite. Um, in terms of, you know, the stakeholders, I think this really is the key, and perhaps my number three, you know, make a deal, um, is perhaps the most important in this situation. Because regime backers need to understand that the relationship, their relationship with their regime, in this case the Syrian regime, needs to change or it's backfiring on them. That is one of the things that fundamentally happened, right, that opened the opportunity for a negotiated outcome on the chemical weapons. And my only point would be that the Russians demonstrated an ability over time to force the Syrian regime to take actions that otherwise seemed impossible. So my challenge would then be, if you can do it then, you can do it now. Thank you. Um, one other just point. I mean, a lot of the grand uh, diplomatic energy didn't get focused on this particular problem over the last several years as Ukraine dominated, as the Iran nuclear deal dominated. Um, we're now in a different context in which the visibility of this crisis is front and center as we said, tied to Russia, but it's also tied to the globalization of ISIS. So that, and which is another sort of very important strategic point that embedded in this that provides a motivation in saying, wait a second, there's a need to stop and rethink th this uh, and in terms of what needs to happen. Let's move, we're gonna bundle together uh, uh, four, and we'll do f a round of four. Uh, we have microphones and uh, we'll start right here, sir. Just please identify yourself and be very succinct. One intervention, please. And then we'll come to, uh, to you and, and, I'm and... Peter Humphrey, intelligence analyst and former diplomat. I'm wondering if any of you are thinking about making some investments in technology like uh, the hot air, uh, hydrogen balloons we use uh, in, to get to North Korea, uh, transparent skin uh, uh, robot zeppelins, 
or even large drones. Is anybody thinking along those lines to get stuff into denied areas? Thank you. Yes, please. Right behind you there is a microphone. Thank you. <clears throat> Hi, my name is Olivia Holtever and with the Institute for Inclusive Security. We work a lot with women in Syria who in many cases are taking over the humanitarian imperatives that you mentioned, whether that's smuggling in goods or negotiating ceasefires with local commanders to get in goods, however insufficient they may be. One of their fears, one of their many fears that we also share is obviously once the peace process or the process that you guys have called for, the political process resumes, they will be shut out and with them much of the knowledge of the local communities which with, with which they work. Um, and part of the problem with that is that you know many of the armed groups that are at the table are not going to be representing those local communities' needs. So my question to you as the humanitarian experts is how do you create that linkage between the local communities and make sure that their needs, humanitarian and otherwise, are translated and heard at the political table along with those of the armed groups? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Travis Trenisha. I'm an intern at the Embassy of Iraq. Uh, I hear several times that uh, this humanitarian crisis is on scale to be on par with uh, World War II and even worse. Uh, are there any lessons that these countries can learn from mass migration seen in World War II um, and apply them to what's happening today? Okay, we have over here, Christine, could you bring it over to this gentleman, please? Thanks. Uh, good morning, Mike Pevsner, U.S. Senate staff. Speak uh, up a bit. Mike. Mike Pevsner, U.S. Senate staff. Uh, I'm going to leaven my question with a bit of cynicism. Uh, the comments regarding Russia and their motivations, uh, I think that I heard seem to assume that they have a similar motivation to the United States and the West. But some could argue that the humanitarian crisis, in fact, works in the favor of the Russian government in that it has taken uh, over as a top priority for Europe over Ukraine. Thanks. Okay. Um, why don't we reverse a little bit here. Jeremy, I'm going to ask you to begin, and then we'll, we'll, we'll run down the table here. Um, sure, thanks. Uh, so to the last question, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say it works in their favor, but we certainly haven't seen them consistently treating humanitarian suffering as something inimical to their interest. I'll put it that way. Um, they've had a pretty high tolerance for it. Um, uh, I'm not sure if there would be lessons from from World War, World War II mass migration. I think, um, you know, fundamentally this is going to be uh, maybe one lesson that's a fairly simple one that we see over and over is that it's the, the humanitarian crisis will end when the war ends. Uh, and barring an end to the conflict, ultimately, that this will be with us indefinitely. And uh, and that's why Secretary Kerry has spent a lot of time in Vienna lately trying to trying to get this process re restarted. And and I would note within that there has been and if you if you saw the statement that came out a few days ago from the most recent Vienna meetings, a pretty strong emphasis on a humanitarian track to that and the importance of civilian security and and uh, humanitarian access as a as an element of uh, uh, and an immediately implementable element of any of any deal. Uh, don't have too much to say on the on the tech on the the, the specific technologies you referenced. I think that um, that's not uh, you know the problem here isn't that we need to kind of get things in by air. The problem is security on the ground. Uh, and um, totally agree with the, the the other question about the importance of of women and, and local actors. 
playing really key roles in any peace deal. I mean, the, if you look at who some of the most dynamic and most vibrant uh, uh, entities throughout this have been the, 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 the community-driven local councils that um, have played a really, really key role in developing governance structures in the absence of, uh, in the absence of the state and carving out some space for themselves even with respect to the armed groups. So uh, building on that will be important for any future stability. Robert? Maybe I will build on, on the question about the communities. It's very important to, to convey the concerns of the, of the local communities. We have seen that many local deals uh, have generated positive solutions for both sides. Uh, and when we put the communities at the center, this is key for success. Um, uh, I can give an example of, uh, of, uh, of a humanitarian component of a political deal that was discussed in Syria recently and still is in the making uh, of the four locations, uh, Zabadani, Madaya, Fua, Kefraya. The two first locations are uh, besieged by the Syrian government and the, the two last uh, ones are besieged by armed opposition groups. And now we are trying to work with uh, the Syrian Red Crescent on uh, ways to evacuate the critically injured from those four besieged areas uh, to, to offer them treatment. Um, and the initial deal was to uh, organize an evacuation through Turkey for uh, the two locations, Fua, uh, Kefraya, uh, through Lebanon, and uh, on the other way around for Madaya, Zabadani, also through Lebanon to Turkey. Uh, and People from the local com communities in Fua Kefraya came to us uh, and told us uh, this is not a good deal for us because we, don't, uh, we are not comfortable uh, to go to, to Turkey. So we have to, uh, to integrate this element in the, in the solution. Uh, and on the wider perspective, uh, the ICRC also has a bilateral dialogue with all countries of influence because under Article 1 common to the four Geneva Convention, states not only have to respect international humanitarian law, but also have to ensure respect. So we try also in our bilateral discussion to convey the, the concerns at community level, because at the end of the day, this, this is what matters and makes solution more uh, pragmatic and more effective. Jason. Uh, so the question on uh, tension of the, the Russians in Syria and, and diverting it sort of from Ukraine, I, I we would hope that the Russians would continue to sort of uh, be helpful in facilitating humanitarian assistance in sort of opposition-held areas in, in Ukraine. I know for MSF, for us, it's been quite difficult. Um, we've essentially been kicked out. Uh, many people have lost access to life-saving medical treatment, and so um, we need all the assistance we can get from, uh, from them and then ensure that, that the situation in Ukraine, which is critical, uh, is not ignored. Um, uh, and, and, and so, but I wouldn't, take it to the kind of conspiracy theory kind of level. Not conflict resolution experts, but clearly, I mean, when working in the communities that we work in, uh, women are an incredibly important part. They're a huge portion of our patients uh, in terms of understanding what the needs are of communities. And so that shouldn't just extend to the needs, but it should extend to, to how uh, these political crises are resolved. And so would hope that they would have a relevant seat at the table of any discussions moving forward. Um, on the technology question, no, we're not using those kinds of uh, tools uh, in Syria. We use other, other tools to try and sort of just map assistance, but those are more um, computer-based tools, let's say, not uh, drones or other things that are used, given the nature of the conflict there. 
you know, one of the things I think we worry about is is that uh, in the aftermath of the of the the Paris attacks, that um, that this sort of leads to really denying people the right to flee. I mean, the vast majority of the people that uh, are fleeing the war in Syria, they've been for years in places like Lebanon and Turkey and Jordan. It's not only Syrians, obviously, that are fleeing, but we have people risking their lives crossing the Mediterranean from as far as Somalia, even northern Nigeria, is that, uh, um, that the security concerns don't preclude these people from fleeing the very sort of threats that we're concerned about, whether it's in the US or, or Europe. Um, I think we have to acknowledge that even uh, as awful and as terrible and disgusting as the attacks that happened in Paris, happened only a few blocks away from our office that we have uh, in France, in Paris. We have to remember that in some ways every day in Syria is Paris. Uh, it is, and it is not stopping. And it's in many of these, uh, these communities, this is, this is a daily reality. Uh, and as shocking as it is, and it's one that they're fleeing, and we would hope that uh, uh, as we look through these things and we see them as somewhat political opportunities, because it seizes countries of the need to, to resolve these issues, that uh, the very people, the victims, don't get caught up in some of those same insecurity imperatives that are arising as well. Rebecca. I'll only comment on the last one. The others are the expertise of the panelists. Um, I share skepticism that Russia would step up to this challenge out of any sense of altruism. Um, I think the untested proposition that I'm putting forward is perhaps have circumstances changed enough that to do so now is in their interest. And can we capitalize on that? We have opportunity for one more round of questions. There's a, uh, Victoria right here in the front, and then we'll come to you. Okay, Victoria. Uh, Victoria Feinberg, I retired from the Department of Defense. Uh, Ms. Horstman, I really enjoyed your presentation, but I wanted to clarify. You try to be very pragmatic. Does it mean that your proposal does not include territories controlled by ISIS? Okay, hold on that, please. Um, yes, please. You had your hand up, right? Oh, yes. yes, and then behind you. There's a microphone right there. Hello, um, Kim Lundberg from the Office of the Medical Chair for Global Health at the National Defense University. Um, the question is, what role would you want to see the military play on the ground, um, U.S. military special forces or other militaries to help with this humanitarian effort and what what kind of roles are being done, to, what kind of cooperation can can be supported from the military the same way we helped in um, with the, um, so I'm sorry, the Ebola crisis uh, in Thank 2014, you. yes. Thank you, and right behind you, there was a hand up. Yes, and we'll come over on this side and collect two. Well, it's funny because my, my question was, was very similar in that we've done named humanitarian relief, relief missions around the world and, and we, being the, we the United States yes. and, we, um, and the ones I'm thinking of have been military led. Um, but for this crisis, which includes, um, to me, uh, the greatest threat to our national security and that we have a generation of children who are growing up in camps 
who, if we, if we ever hope to get in front of this problem, um, we have an opportunity by providing them food, clothing, and an opportunity for education at a fraction of the cost of a military operation. And yet, what we're doing is defaulting that to the UN, whose mission it is. But again, if it's, if it's a critical to our national security, why would we default that to, you know, away? And, and so, you know, I would just say that, um, you know, I, I, I see where she's coming from, and I just wonder, at least in, if we took a permissive environment, say Jordan or Turkey, to your point of at least um, prioritize it and, and take one bite of the elephant as opposed to all four million. So. Thank you. Let's take two more, uh, two more questions, please. There's one right here in the front. Hi, uh, I'm Samira Daniels, uh, Ramsey Decisions. Uh, this is to Jason. Um, I, if, I didn't hear your response to what perhaps, maybe it wasn't addressed to you, but I'm interested in your uh, position on what political solution do you think, what are the contours of it that would you think make a, di a difference? I w I'm interested in your position. Okay. Um, right in the rear there, and then we'll come back. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, my name is Colin Steele. I work at Georgetown. And an inverse of the military question, how might or should humanita traditional humanitarian operations evolve in the face of highly hostile environments? Uh, Rebecca, there was one question from Victoria directed to you around ISIS, which is uh, a very important dimension around which we really didn't talk much about this panel's view on, on uh, you know, are there options, are there other options for engaging uh, with ISIS or engaging with displaced populations that are in territory controlled by them? Obviously, this is one of the most difficult challenges, um, but I think going back to the principle that was raised by the fellow panelists, I think for this to be the priority initiative for a period of time, you have to seek access in all territories and seek to serve people where they are. Um, obviously, we can't put humanitarian workers at ex unacceptable risk. So there's going to be a negotiation, and that is one of the reasons why I think in this idea you might need some sort of joint entity um, empowered by the UN in some ways in a similar fashion to the way the joint mission served that purpose um, in the CW removal to help attempt those negotiations. I'm not that naive. This is obviously harder. Um, but it has to be attempted, and the principle, I think, needs to be maintained. Um, quickly, on the role of the military and military options, what I would say is I'm quite deliberate. I, I said in the beginning we're, we're caught between these two bookends, kind of throw some military solutions at the problem or seek a broad political agreement. I think that if we have an overall framework agreement at a political level for a specific set of objectives, we can then see whether the U.S. military or other militaries can be part of that solution. I suspect it would not be on the ground in Syria because we would probably just exacerbate the crisis and the amount of on-the-ground tension. But I think that needs to follow. Um, so I think that the issue is how do you design an overall framework? How do you look at who can best perform the tasks required once those tasks are identified? and then see if there's a role for the U.S. military that can fit within the policy confines that the president would likely give. Jason, uh, to you. 
specifically? Yeah. I'm not going to give a very satisfying answer, to be honest, because we're not in the business of solving conflicts. We're responding to the consequences of them. So we don't necessarily have a position on what the contours of some kind of political settlement would look like. Um, we obviously just believe that there is an urgency to finding that path, uh, whatever it may be for the parties to determine. I did want to just kind of respond, I think, to the question about the uh, any parallels between sort of the U.S. military role in Ebola versus sort of what's happening here in Syria. Uh, very different situations, clearly, uh, non-conflict setting. Uh, there was uh, expertise to be brought to bear, both, uh, uh, well, in this case, in Ebola, it, was, it ended up being more logistical. We would have hoped it could have been also medical from our organization's standpoint. Um, I think, uh, honestly, uh, it would be that, uh, like all the other actors that are involved in this conflict, to uh, respect the laws of war, uh, even when it touches on areas of counterterrorism operations where there are, I think, uh, possibilities of, of real questions about whether medical facilities are going to be respected in those operations. Um, we have concerns about that, obviously, following the bombing of our hospital in, in Kunduz, Afghanistan. Uh, it goes, extends beyond Afghanistan, many other conflict settings where U.S. Special Forces are operational. Uh, and what are the rules of engagement for those forces uh, uh, in those kinds of areas? So. Maybe um, the, the two questions, the roles of the U.S. military or special forces. Uh, in, in my presentation, I mentioned that uh, today uh, all sides of the conflict uh, unfortunately disregard the basic rules of war. So very concretely for the U.S. special forces, who are supporting one or two or more groups, uh, a, very, a very clear um, uh, position about the importance of the respect of international humanitarian law would certainly make a difference, which means the groups supported by the U.S. military should uh, treat detainees humanely, should uh, allow safe, unimpeded access of humanitarian aid, uh, should not target uh, hospitals, ambulances, uh, health personnel, and so forth. So that would be a very important contribution. And of course, the ICRC is trying to have the same conversation with all other groups. Uh, and those are complex discussions. About the question of how, what is the way forward for the humanitarian uh, aid, our take is um, we have to, to stand firm to principled humanitarian um, approach and, and action that is based on the needs of the people, not uh, the, the areas they live in or uh, under who, uh, who is controlling those, uh, those areas. And here I concur with maybe today the opportunity in the broader political environment that the incentive for a political solution is greater uh, with the migration crisis, with the, uh, for the first time uh, having uh, Iran around the, the negotiating table in, in Vienna offers maybe uh, an environment or an opportunity or a momentum where uh, international humanitarian law should be put at the center and the, and the sufferance of the people should be put as a priority so that convergent action can ease up and alleviate the suffering of the people. Thank you. Jeremy. Sure. Uh, to the two military questions. So when, whenever we work with the U.S. military on a, on a disaster response, the first question that we're looking at is what is the unique capability that the U.S. military brings that we can't get anywhere else? So on Ebola, that was the speed and scale and breadth with which they could do this whole range of, of different logistical and construction activities that, uh, that at the time we weren't sure we could find anywhere else uh, in the UN or the NGO community or what have you. Um, 
And we apply that kind of a filter because the, you know, the U.S. military is not, the, 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 the somewhat glib phrase that we use, the U.S. military is not a magic warehouse. It's not just a place where you need something done, you just, you know, there's got to be somebody in the military who can do that. Um, we try to use them very strategically, very judiciously, where the military brings something that, we, that, that doesn't exist or, uh, anywhere else. And I don't think that through that kind of a lens, the U.S. military has a major role to play in the aid effort here. I mean, even leaving aside all the complications that Robert and, and Jason have already referenced about uh, military engagement and aid in a kinetic, in a kinetic environment. Uh, the NGO community, local Syrian organizations with whom they work, uh, the United Nations, the Red Cross, Red Crescent uh, Society, have tremendous reach if they have the security and the access that they need in order to move and deliver. And when they have that, and you know you see that in the uh, in the surrounding countries, where they have that, they're able to do a great deal within the available resources that they can raise. So I don't, you know, wouldn't see a a, a a major value add to having the U.S. military directly involved in in the provision of assistance. Um, to the question about uh, how humanitarian operations are are evolving in this kind of a hostile environment. You know, this is really one of the defining characteristics of the last probably decade, decade and a half of humanitarian response is working in these kinds of contested environments. So it's not just here, it's, you know, a lot of parallels to Somalia, a lot of parallels to Yemen, uh, a lot of parallels to uh, some parts of South Sudan where humanitarians are, are trying to negotiate access and, and supervise activities in a place where it's very difficult to safely stay. And a lot of lessons have been learned, and there's some really tremendously innovative things being done around remote monitoring and re remote management of, of programs. Uh, one of the most encouraging things that we've seen is that the big international NGOs are doing much more now in, in partnering with local and diaspora organizations because of the access that those groups have. So if you can, as an international NGO, go in and build up a substantial network uh, of partnerships with local groups and with diaspora groups, it gives a level of reach, but it also gives a level of context expertise and ability to target and deliver aid appropriately that as an international organization, you wouldn't be able to, to, to deliver on your own. So I think that's been a real innovation we saw <clears throat> that we've seen. And that's long been the practice on the development side. It hasn't as much been the practice on the relief side until the past decade, and, and with Somalia and Syria and these constrained access environments, we've seen much, much more of that than we traditionally do. And it's a practice that hopefully will migrate out of those environments because I think it's a, a, a good practice generally whether you're in a, a conflicted, contested environment or not. Thank you very much. Um, this has been an, a, an extraordinary conversation. I think it leaves us with a couple of very strong impressions. One is the need for higher level concerted action by world leaders, the recognition that the ground, the strategic environment is shifting, has shifted and will continue to shift with the European crisis, with globalized ISIS, with Russia on the ground, the U.S. much more engaged on the ground militarily, Iran and the Vienna talks, and the conspicuous visibility of this human crisis. There are a number of different entry points. We've talked about Vienna about the UN Security Council. There's the May summit in 2016 uh, that the UN Secretary General is calling on humanitarian action. Um, all of these points are ones where we might see more action. Uh, and I think all of you here, uh, we, I want to thank you all for, for the terrifically important, invaluable work that you all do. We're all in your debt to MSF, 
to OFDA, to ICRC, thank you so much, and to DOD, your former employer. Rebecca, we're in its debt as well for the good work that it has done, uh, particularly in this case, in talking about the chemical weapons destruction. So please join me in thanking these uh, four individuals.